19-year-old Faith Hedgepeth was murdered in her home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina on September 7, 2012. In Faith's case, and any time someone is murdered, the victim is not the only victim. The violent loss radiates outward, sears the hearts of family and friends permanently. There is no recovery. There's only living with it, never forgetting it. Faith's mother, Connie, in a 2014 interview she did with North Carolina's state law enforcement agency, the SBI. First of all, she was my little girl, my unexpected miracle. She was a godsend. Um, you know, all of us, I think all of us feel like, you know, we want there to help her, you know, to protect when that's part of our job. Faith's brother Chad, who was 14 years older than his little sister, once did an interview with Carolina Connection Student Radio talking about the sister he cherished. It's still, still very, very tough. Um, dealing with the way she was taken from us. So they're telling us that it's not a matter of if the case will be solved, it's just a matter of when. The SBI, while not the lead investigating agency, on its website shows Faith's case as a cold case. Faith's photo is in fact the first on the agency's cold case page, upper left corner. The first name of 24 listed there. 12 women, 10 men, two children. What will lead to a break in Faith Hedgepeth's case? Is this a story with no ending? Or a story where resolution is but one phone call away? Somebody whose conscience demands the truth be told? Or a high-tech investigative step, maybe, in the world of genealogy detective work that cracks the mystery, that leads to the answer, the killer? It's happened in dozens of other cases in the last few years. One of the first, the so-called East End Rapist, Golden State Killer. The magnitude of this case demanded that it be solved. There were upwards of 50 rapes, 12 murders, crimes that spanned 10 years across at least 10 different counties, Northern, Central, and Southern California. The answer was, and always was going to be, in the DNA. In Faith's case, where there is DNA of an unidentified suspect, Chapel Hill PD is very vague about what they've done or are doing in this realm. Is genealogy, at this point, possibly your best hope? And I don't mean a far hope or wild hope. I mean, is, it, is genealogy likely to be the, the way this thing gets solved? short of someone else coming in with new information? So the, the genealogy portion is a tool, right? So it's not a matter of um, something returning and saying, this is your suspect, you know, go get him. So Faith's family waits and prays and wonders when. We don't want people to forget about Faith and about what she went through, you know, not until justice is served. Because the burden of injustice never lets up. 
This is Pursuit, the podcast, episode five, the case of Faith Hedgepeth, a UNC college student killed where she lived in the middle of the night. A Friday night just before fall, September 7th. You've heard previously from a man in law enforcement, a DA, who saw the murder scene that evening, saw what few ever see or would ever want to. A death, a body, a homicide. Up close. You don't turn away, you examine. What you miss or don't miss matters. That's true. I've always thought it was an advantage to visit the scene of of these types of crimes, homicides specifically. Jim Woodall was called to Faith's apartment complex in Chapel Hill that night. But it's for us to get a firsthand account of what is there. It appeared there had been a pretty substantial struggle. Again, being a young person just at some level seems to make it worse. Woodall never forgets scenes like Faith's or any murder victim's. The Orange County DA knows, on a very personal level, the pain that comes after a murder. My family has been through that um, with a, a family member who was murdered many, many years ago. That's right. The prosecutor who seeks justice for murders is part of a family who's faced the hurt of homicide. It was Woodall's Aunt Maddie, his father's sister. Woodall's father is still alive, almost 90 years old. The crime that took his loved one is now decades in the past, and he still talks about it. The whole family does. I heard about it all my life. I don't remember a time when I didn't hear about it. Is it something that nobody forgets? Maddie and her husband James Creech were separated when tragedy descended. Like so many before and so many after, a man who claims to love a woman loses all control when she leaves or seeks to leave and gets violent. Maddie was staying with friends and had been for a while. Woodall has the rest of that story, and as you listen, you'll not only hear a family member stung by a murder talking, you'll hear a prosecutor too, point by point by point. He came by one night, he wanted to talk to her. He had been drinking. He told her that he had a um, basket of peaches, He wanted to give um, my aunt and the family she was staying with some peaches. They told him, we don't want any peaches. We think you should leave. He went out to his truck and he came back with a shotgun. The husband and wife, my aunt and two children um, all barricaded themselves in a bedroom of this little frame house, which is still standing today. He fired through the door and happened to hit my aunt, didn't hit anyone else. Everyone else ran out of the house, um, hid in the cornfield behind the house, hid under the porch. He couldn't get the door open. He walked around the house, came in another doorway into that bedroom, and one of the children who was hiding said she looked, she saw him reach up and pulled the string to turn on a light. He turned on a light, then he shot my aunt a second time. Jim Woodall's Aunt Maddie was only 28. Then he went and got in his truck, started driving to Smithfield, because this happened in a community called Brogdon, 
which Brogdon's claim to fame is that's where Ava Gardner grew up. He was driving toward the sheriff's department because I think he, from the beginning, intended to turn himself in. He ran off the road into a ditch. He flagged down some passersby, told them what happened, asked them to take him to the sheriff's department, got to the sheriff's department, and told them what happened. Literally, he went to trial about two weeks after the murder took place. And then he was executed to the day six months later. For years, Woodall had been told that the DA on his Aunt Maddie's murder case, a man named Jack Hooks, had been wonderful with family members and with seeking the conviction that, in the end, helped bring them a small measure of peace. And fighting for crime victims' families, for justice under the law, became Jim Woodall's career. And his career as the Orange County DA is still going, so many years later. Which takes us back now to justice, or the lack of it, for Faith Hedgepeth, for her loved ones. When Woodall went to the murder scene about eight hours after Faith was found, his first instinct was, because of the level of violence, that the perpetrator was someone who knew Faith. It was, he says, a simply terrible scene. He looked all around him to see what he could see. He saw Faith's body. He looked all around her, all around the apartment. He was also shown the handwritten note on a fast food paper bag left very near Faith's body, saying, over three lines, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. I'm not going to say that I've never um, had a case where there was a note left at the crime scene, but I can't specifically recall one. When he left that night, Woodall was pretty convinced police would have answers soon. And I thought they would probably quickly develop some suspects. Um, I I viewed that as a case that would likely um, be solved, and I don't want to say quickly, but would be solved. Police did act quickly. In episode four of Pursuit, I told you about Eric Takoy Jones, a one-time boyfriend of Faith Hedgepeth's roommate, Karina Rosario. Police records show that Jones came to their attention the same day Faith's body was found. He was asked and agreed to go to the station to speak with officers. It was time to see if Takoy Jones would talk to me. I decided to send a note to Jones via UPS to his mother's last known address. In it, I told him I was working on the Pursuit podcast. I wrote, I very much would like to speak to you. You deserve to have your story told. I left my contact information. I saw online that the next day at 11.49 a.m., the UPS package had arrived. Turns out I didn't have to wait long, not long at all. 32 minutes later, a text came in. It's Takoy, he wrote. Maybe, I thought, Jones was ready to state his case. I tried to call him, no answer. Then, over the next hour or two, we went back and forth texting. I knew that every word mattered because every word might be his last to me. I wanted to convince him to open up. The way it started out wasn't what I expected. Takoy wrote, what's my story worth to you? There it was. Jones wanted to be paid. But I wondered, what was his story? I text him back, I don't pay for stories. I write, in the podcast, I will cover in some detail most of what I know about you. 
So it's in your interest to clear up any negative stuff if you can. I went on. I want to be fair to Coy, and I definitely want to get at the truth or various truths, no matter what they are or where they lead. Clearly, police focused on you at first. Takoy writes back, So this is basically for you to get your big break. $500 is my price. $200 for my lawyer's time. $700 and we can talk. So I thought, he's got a lawyer. Didn't know that. I write, Takoy, I understand you want compensation, but I just cannot. What that does is affect your credibility and mine. I would agree to sit with your attorney and you can answer what you wish. Your lawyer can answer when he or she prefers. If you have zero connection to what happened to Faith and may be able to help me find out who did, it is what her family and Faith deserves. Takoy writes, I'm not interested. Take care, and if you ever send another thing to my mom's house, I will press charges for harassment. Later, he adds, Honestly, I could care less what anybody has to say about me. Life is still great. With the exchange hanging by a thread, I thought I had a shot at one question. I write, I have to ask you, since I have never heard you say, were you involved in any way, shape, or form in Faith's death? To Coy's reply a few minutes later, I have no involvement and I don't know who could possibly have done this. Here's my reaction. First, there was not even a hint of emotion about Faith's death that I could discern or the ongoing mystery of the open case, the frustration. Even though Jones was quick to express his shock and concern on TV seven hours after Faith was found dead, he said to one TV station then, whoever did this deserves to burn. But the one-time rapper who once called himself a community icon seems, at least, relatively unconcerned about the unsolved murder of a woman he knew. Let's turn now from Takoy Jones, a name frequently mentioned in connection with the Faith Hedgepeth case, to a man without a name. By that, I mean a name we don't know. I'd never heard anybody talk about this mystery man. Then I started digging deeper into the day Faith was found. I don't know if police know who the man is, They've never made an appeal for help in finding him, but here's what I know about that story. The information comes from a woman who lived in the same Chapel Hill apartment complex. Even now, the woman isn't taking any chances. She asked me not to use her name. So I am over at Faith and Karina's uh, old apartment complex now, and I'm outside on the sidewalk uh, of the building right across from where they lived. And this is where uh, the woman I communicated with used to live. So the woman, when she was out with her pet or getting in and out of her car, uh, she could see who was coming, coming out of Faith and Karina's apartment. And she remembers a guy, she says, uh, in her long email to me, who lived in Faith's apartment, she thought, and he would come out. He had an SUV with an unusual sidestep, she says, with an ultra-thick lip to it. He would never smile at anyone and often looked as if he was agitated and angry, she writes. Unlike other people, he more or less gave me this glare. Now I'm a person who generally meets my neighbors and usually I introduce myself. Something about him made me stay away. 
I learned about Takoy Jones, but that's not the guy, she writes, that I used to see coming out of their apartment. She goes on. The day Faith was killed, I just remember getting off the bus and seeing helicopters overhead. I instinctively knew to look for reporters to find out what was going on, and they told me about the murder. The officers finally started letting us go back into our apartments, but they were stopping us and would take us to the side and, and interview us. I told them that there was a man I used to see coming out of that apartment who seemed quite angry and agitated, and it made me fearful. I started to describe him. About 5'10", medium-colored skin, very clean cut, like a UPS guy, like military or something, very professional. She writes, the male cop began to look disappointed that it wasn't the profile he needed. So I said, I, I guess you guys already have this wrapped up and this isn't really what you're looking for. And he shrugged and I said, okay, I won't waste your time. And then they let me go. So at that first interview, my information wasn't needed. The woman goes on to write that she didn't hear or see much of anything else until November of that year. Then one day she saw a number of police officers on the property stopping people. This time, she wrote, they are asking specific people for DNA samples, men. Several of my neighbors refused. A couple of things at this moment really made me feel sick inside, she says. First, they were taking DNA samples nearly two months after the murder. Second, I counted at least three families who had moved from the complex after the murder. A lot of change had happened after her murder and I thought evidence gathering was pretty futile. The woman writes about how she approached the police again, this time to talk about how things were playing out. This other cop, she writes, a little further away, just suddenly lost it and started shouting at me. He said, it's none of your business. You don't need to know what's going on. This is our job and our duty, and we'll let you know what you need to know. It floored me, she said, and really upset me. I was wondering at the time if the information I initially gave about the guy I saw who lived in the apartment was something being overlooked, or if they just knew who he was and didn't think he was relevant. About three months later, the woman saw another law enforcement official in the parking lot and they talked. He was from a different agency, she said. She writes, it suddenly occurred to me, oh my gosh, the guy's car. If I could get to a computer, I might be able to find the make and model, considering it had this very distinctive sidestep. I went upstairs and started searching SUVs with running boards and came across a photo. And I thought, oh my God, that's the car. And it was that champagne color, which is so hard to remember because it's neutral. And then I remembered, yes, the guy drove a Lexus because I always wondered who in our parking lot could afford a Lexus since that's out of most of our residents' price range. The law enforcement officer on the scene asked her to call the station. Later she did. She writes, a female officer answered and I told her the information. She seemed very tense and was snapping at me. She said, is there anything else you want to tell us? I said, no. She sighed heavily and said, okay, if you hear of anything else that is significant in this case, give us a call back and hung up. To this day, the woman who lived across from Faith and Karina and who dealt with police several times just doesn't understand why CHPD treated her the way they did whether they ever took her information about the mystery man and the champagne-colored Lexus seriously. And if not, why not? She writes, it was weird, the whole experience. It was schizophrenic, like they couldn't decide what they want. We'd like information from you, but no, not that. 
Okay, we want more information, but not that. Don't ask questions. It's none of your business. Okay, we really are looking for more information. Are you kidding us? We mean real information. The woman closed her email to me by saying, If you are asked by authorities, you can give them my name and I will verify. But I just don't want it out in public. The killer is still out there. Still out there, the killer and possible accomplices. I'm thinking back now to this exchange I had with police official Salisa LeHue. Do you think you're any closer to finding um, who did this? Oh, I sure hope so. Than you were 48 hours after it happened? I sure hope so. It's fair to ask, how do we hold the police accountable? With a murder that happened in 2012, why do authorities need so many secrets? I've asked to see the whole file and said I'd listen to any request to not report certain aspects. The answer? Can't do it. I get that they want to protect an investigation, hold out some key evidence only the killer would know, but when does holding back become counterproductive, start to work against you instead of for you? Has the Faith Hedgepeth case been solved the way CHPD has been doing things? No. In episode six, you'll start hearing from experts I've talked to, likely the same kinds of experts police have talked to. First, on the 911 call in this case, from Faith's roommate, Karina Rosario. Zara on 911, where is your emergency? Hi, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend is like, unconscious. To start off with, you know, hi, like this is just, I'm calling, you know, one of my friends or something seems very unusual to start off that way. The immediate thing we're looking for is, is, is a plea for help. The experts I spoke with are very specific in one respect. Something's just not right. Episode six of Pursuit, coming soon. Pursuit is available on most major podcast sites. If you like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate your support. You can also find and listen to episodes on PursuitPodcast.com. If you have information or thoughts for me on the case, in writing or via an anonymous voice mailbox, go to the contact page on the website or reach out on social media. The number for Chapel Hill Police Crime Stoppers is also on PursuitPodcast.com. There is currently a potential $40,000 reward available in the Faith Hedgepeth murder investigation.